This is Garth in the lost cabin somewhere in rural Massachusetts. It's a bright Christmas Eve morning and I'm enjoying a brand new invention. Pre-sliced bread. Thanks to inventor Otto Frederick Rovetter, he not only invented the machine that sliced bread, he invented the process that wrapped it in wax paper that kept the slices from going stale too quickly. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the places we've been so far and the places we're going to go next. So sit back and get ready to get lost in Massachusetts. All right, welcome to Lost Massachusetts Christmas Eve episode. If you're just relaxing and you want to listen to this, I think that's fantastic. Maybe you're driving somewhere. You're going for a long drive to go see your family on Christmas Eve and you need something to pass the time. Well, welcome. If you have been listening to this show and you've listened to all of the episodes up until now, I thank you. I really appreciate it. And I want to talk about where we've been so far and where we're going. And if you haven't listened to the episode so far, you may want to go back and do that because you'll end up being a little lost. Sorry for the pun. So each one of these episodes that we've done so far, the topics that we've covered, has sort of an important point about the lost history of Massachusetts and each one sort of touches on a different part of our lost past. Now we started out down the Cape on First Encounter Beach and that is of course where the pilgrims from the Mayflower and the Nauset natives first sort of met and it was an unpleasant meeting. They were shooting at each other. That actually kind of settled down and uh, they ended up sort of getting along for a while, at least a couple of decades, and uh, we get into the details of that in later episodes. And then we went up to a different part of Cape Cod, up by the upper edge, uh, just outside of Provincetown. Now you may be thinking to yourself, there's something that's beyond Provincetown? I thought Provincetown was the end of the Cape. Well, there's a whole lost world out on the edge of Cape Cod. There were several villages out there, where they produced salt and they lived off the ocean. I mean, they had multiple families, schoolhouses, a post office, and all of that stuff is gone. And this tells us about periods where the, uh, the marketplace for different products changed and drastically changed where and how people lived and forced people to move on and move to other places. Then we started off in Dogtown, and we talked about how within a particular community, within Rockport and Gloucester, 
there is this lost place. So we have these modern towns where people live and they're very vibrant communities. And then just sort of hidden in the, uh, in the hinterland is this whole lost world that used to be a community. And we go into the details of how that became a place where people lived and how it became not a place where people lived. And how in between it became sort of a, uh, a strange mysterious and frightening place. And then we went out to Sudbury, specifically to this kind of large region called Knobscot, which Knobscot is very much the crossroads of Massachusetts history. And there is so much that happened out there, and it's actually, it's, it's a wilderness now. It's a wilderness that you can go out and hike and explore and I encourage people to do so because it's a it's a great series of trails it's a wonderful woods to walk through but also because of the amount of early and colonial history that took place out there and how it changed over the years specifically out there we go out and visit the burial ground where there was a community of people who were infected with smallpox who were set aside and they either lived out their short lives or they survived and went back into the greater community and then we went downtown into Boston and we looked at Waldo's Wharf specifically at the Mill Pond area in Boston and this is all paved over now there's a dense neighborhood of businesses, apartment buildings, hotels, convention center, and all of this stuff was water at some point. And it was a very busy internal pond where people ran mills. And then on the other side of a causeway, a mill dam, there was the ocean and there were busy ports there. And all of that are streets that you can walk on now. It's completely transformed. And the places that were along the edge of this mill pond have been largely forgotten, but you can see them on very old maps. And then we uh, dive into this sort of mysterious conflict, likely between French and their native allies and the English settlements along the coast. And this is actually a big part of Massachusetts history, these sort of ongoing conflicts between the English settlements and other European settlements and their fight over the territory and how that influenced what happened to certain communities uh, along the Massachusetts coastline and in the interior too. We also went up to Salem and we talked about the history of how Salem really became Halloween headquarters for the United States and the, uh, the more frightening and shameful past of that community and how that actually happened in a different place, not the modern day Salem that many people are familiar with. Then we did an episode that was partially based on fiction. It was based on a, uh, a Lovecraft depiction of a town or series of towns in Massachusetts 
some of them real, some of them imaginary, and even the imaginary ones were based in part on real experiences that the author had in Massachusetts. We had an episode where we went to visit one of Boston's greatest cemeteries, the Forest Hill Cemetery, and what that can tell us about the history of the people who lived here and uh, where they lived, what their lives were like, and then what the property of the cemetery itself was like before there was a cemetery there. It has its own history other than the grave sites. And then we sailed out to one of Boston's harbor islands, Pedix Island, and we uh, looked at first the artillery base, the army base that was out there for decades and protected Boston's inner harbor during several conflicts and actually thankfully it was never actually used in combat and how that property was then repurposed to be a POW camp at the end of World War II and that you can actually go out to the island and you can see the remains of this history and even though that's kind of a dense history you have this decades-long military presence and then you have POWs living on the island for a period as well but that's only the beginning of the history of this island there's actually much more to see just there in that space and then finally we ended up with a Thanksgiving episode where we talked about the food of the first Thanksgiving, the first historical Thanksgiving anyway, and the complexities of that particular tradition and how that represents also a, a, a collision of different cultures and what that meant to changes in uh, the communities of Massachusetts. So all of these sort of stories kind of touch on other stories that we're going to go into and other lost communities that we're going to look at. And each one of them is sort of its own category. We have this much broader, large category of native communities that no longer exist. And we're going to take a very deep dive on what happened to them. This is a part of our history which is really lost but it's actually something that we can know about if we take the time to look at it. We've also got many places in Massachusetts that are like the, uh, the Outer Cape settlements. These are places that were built around an industry for a period of time. And when that industry moved somewhere else or it was no longer needed, the people left too. But they always leave debris behind that we can pick up and examine. We've also got lots of different communities in Massachusetts that were shaped by conflict. And there are a series of wars in our early history that don't get taught in school. And honestly, I think that nobody should graduate from... Uh, a high school in Massachusetts unless they've learned about these conflicts in detail. I mean, not only are they a big part of our history as a state, 
they actually lead into a lot of history of how the United States became what it is and expanded and understanding the push and pull of all of these different communities and powers is really critical. The uh, subject of transformation of the land itself is a big part of lost history. So the mill pond in downtown Boston was eventually filled in, paved over, and completely transformed. And that's something that happened in multiple locations in Boston and actually happened all over the state. At various points in our history, the land has been completely transformed. People have been moved out because of a transformation and then a transformation takes place and people move in. And these communities that were either there or arrived after, they're sort of mysterious in terms of our local history. The whole category of uh, fictional depictions of Massachusetts locations is really interesting. Lovecraft is one of them. Lovecraft wrote a lot about Massachusetts cities and towns, but he's just one author. There are multiple authors, famous New England authors, who have uh, created very vivid fictional depictions of very real places. So we want to look at those stories and we want to try and understand what it is that they saw and how much of it we can actually still see today. It's, it's fascinating stuff. The Boston Harbor Islands have so many stories attached to them. I mean, not only are there so many islands in Boston Harbor, there are also multiple islands throughout Massachusetts that have very strange vanished histories that we can dig into. Some of these islands are so mysterious that you actually can't go to them, but we're going to try. We're going to do the best we can. And if we can't actually go there, we might be able to talk to some people who have been there and can tell us what it was like. Um, I've even found in my research there are some places where the uh, island inhabitants are currently unknown, okay? And this is another strange aspect in our modern world. You wouldn't think that within a very densely populated state that there would be islands that are technically or literally cut off from the rest of the communities in the state, but that's actually something that still goes on today. And uh, this is part of our weird lost history. And also we talked very uh, broadly about uh, William Bradford and his source text about the Mayflower and Plymouth Plantation. And one of the things that I've found, and other people of course have found by reading his, uh, his journal in detail, is he talks about all these places that are gone. He gives specific uh, names and locations to native communities that have since disappeared. 
He also references other European settlements that didn't continue. And we can find out where those places were and what happened to them. So each one of these stories that we've covered so far is actually one of many of lost Massachusetts history. And each one of them has their own interesting story to tell. And even for me, who I thought I knew a lot about these places, uh, I have been amazed, surprised, and confused about what I have found just doing these episodes and just doing the research for these episodes. What am I talking about? I started this podcast with the knowledge and experience of lost places I've been to or just heard about. And those would have been enough for several years worth of episodes. But because I wanted to create the definitive list, I started putting together data sets from government databases, the post office, railroads, archived magazines, historical maps, and many other places. And what I ended up with was over 5,000 places. And that list is actually growing the more information I collect. Um, To be sure, some of these places are micro-neighborhoods within um, larger communities that may be vanished. And so if you have one particular town that disappeared and it has a whole bunch of neighborhoods in it, you're, you're multiplying that area times five or times ten. But even if you take those out, this is still a really large and dense list. And understanding the reasons why each one of these places vanished or changed takes, uh, takes some unraveling. And that's sort of the next part of it is that each time I did research into a particular area, I would instantly come across other lost places that I wasn't looking for and I hadn't heard of ever before. In doing the actual episodes themselves and going out and visiting these different places, I started talking to people and when I spoke to these people, they of course had more information for me. And one thing that you'll find if you're into history and you talk to other people who are into history, they love to talk and they have a lot to say and many of these people just want to be heard. It's really easy to become quickly overwhelmed by all this information and I'll just give you a few examples of what happened during creating a few of these episodes that opened up completely brand new doors. Uh, For example, when I was recording and exploring for the episode on Waldorf's Wharf, I was looking at a couple of uh, historic spots on the streets in Boston. And this guy rode up to me on a bicycle with a cart. And in the cart were uh, two little kids. And he started telling me that his father ran a museum in that neighborhood. 
And we had a whole secondary conversation that had nothing to do with the episode itself. But now I have the contact information for uh, that museum, and I still have to go back and do that. Some of my uh, friends who have listened to the episode uh, have reached out to me with additional information. For example, a friend of mine uh, who was really excited about the concept of the podcast in general He took me on a kayak tour of a hidden section of the Charles River, which I never knew about. And we found lots of really cool stuff uh, in that, and that's an episode that's upcoming. I also have another friend whose father, turns out, is a historian of a very particular type of lost Massachusetts history. And he sent me a copy of his book, which I've been reading. So, in actually talking to people while doing episodes, uh, I find more information. And some people just get excited listening to the episodes, and then they tell me a story about something else. And uh, so the list I have just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And of course, the, the list that I pulled together, the data set that I pulled together, that was based on sort of automatic data collection. When I actually start looking at the source data, I find things that weren't necessarily picked up. And to give you an example, I was looking at an old map of Massachusetts that was printed in France. And it's funny because it was printed by somebody who had actually never been here before. And he was basing his map creation on other people's information. And in this French language map, there are a number of place names that not only have I never heard of, but are not recorded in any other historical context that I'm aware of. So was he making up the names of places? Was he misunderstanding the places that he was recording in the map? I don't know. We're going to have to actually go out and see what we can find. And this leads us into a refresher discussion about what makes a place lost, at least from our perspective. The sort of uh, criteria, the things that we're looking for when we determine whether or not a place is vanished, gone, transformed to the point where it's unrecognizable or has uh, some sort of mysterious past that is completely forgotten. There was a war in Europe, and even though many of their sons and daughters were away at the front, it still felt very far away. That all changed early in the morning of December 6th, 1917. Just before 9 a.m., a Norwegian ship carrying relief supplies to Belgium collided with a French munitions ship in Halifax Harbor. The munition ship, Mont Blanc, was carrying 62 tons 
of cotton for ammunition. 2,300 tons of picric acid. 240 tons of benzol. And 250 tons of dynamite. The ship caught fire in the collision and drifted towards shore. Panicked crew members ran up, shouting in French. Many of them not understood or too late. When the acid caught fire and mixed with the ship's fuel, it created the largest man-made explosion in history. Not only did the explosion destroy 1,600 buildings and kill some 2,000 people, it created an artificial tidal wave that pushed three blocks into the city. The blast area was over one square mile. It pushed other ships into the sand and injured over 9,000 people that flooded the small hospitals and caused confusion and chaos just before Christmas. News of what had happened traveled around the world. And even though New England and the Canadian Maritimes had been separated by a border for over a hundred years, they shared a very common history they were some of the same immigrant people, and they were effectively part of a single country at one time. The people of Boston poured their hearts out in donations to the people of Halifax. The amount of charity sent to Nova Scotia by people from Massachusetts resulted in the people of Halifax never forgetting their generosity. And for over a hundred years, Halifax has given Boston its Christmas tree, which stands in the middle of Boston Common below the State House. So remember that Christmas is a time for giving and that when you see a Christmas tree, remember that it's not just for decoration, it really means something. This is Garth in the lost cabin somewhere in rural Massachusetts. I'm sitting by my roaring fire and radio and I've made a big pot of hot buttered rum with nutmeg, cinnamon, and cloves. We'll be returning for more adventures in lost places, but for now, sit back and slip into a long winter's nap with me. And remember, it's always December 24th. 1928 somewhere. You know, children, was the night before Christmas when all through the house, not a creature was staring, not even a mouse. 
The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap when out on the lawn there rose such a clatter. I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash Tore open the shutter and drew up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eye should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer with a little old driver so lively and quick. I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his courses they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now, Dasher, now, Dancer, now, Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Dunder and Blitzen, to the top of the fort, to the top of the wall. Now, dash away, dash away, dash away all. So up to the housetop, this course as they flew, with a sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas, too. And then in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney, St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his hat. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry, his droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, and a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know that I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night.